We've been discussing the whole process of meditation and how it's part of a threefold process of listening to the teachings, thinking about them, and then making them into a beneficial habit through meditation. And we uh, were speaking yesterday about how Tsongkhapa describes the meditation process, and he emphasizes that we need to know the uh, causes, the uh, foundation upon which the state of mind that we wish to uh, develop rests. So, for instance, if we want to meditate on bodhicitta, then we uh, need to understand that this is a state of mind that we build up to through various steps. And so perhaps you're uh, familiar with the two standard methods for building up to developing bodhicitta, starting with equanimity, with which we rid our minds of attachment and repulsion and indifference to others. So we're not attracted to some, we're not repelled from others, we don't regard some as strangers, but we are equally open to everybody. And then recognizing everybody as having been our mother at some time in previous lifetime, which only makes sense if we understand and have confidence in beginningless mind. This is actually a very, very difficult realization to get of recognizing everyone as having been our mothers, because for most of us it is very, very difficult to understand beginningless mind. And if we don't understand and have confidence in beginningless mind, then this whole thing of everybody having been our mothers is a bit of nonsense. But it's important if we want to be able to have a Mahayana scope. Mahayana scope means that we are directing our wishes toward absolutely everybody. And then remembering the kindness of motherly love and really feeling very grateful and appreciating that kindness and therefore the wish to help in return. And then heartwarming love, which is... When we think of others, it makes our hearts feel so warm and wonderful. And if anything went wrong with them, we would feel really terrible. Regarding absolutely everybody. And then love, the wish for them to be happy and causes for happiness. And compassion, the wish for them to be free of their suffering and the causes of suffering. Which means that we have to have a very good understanding of the first and second noble truths. We're not just talking about helping them find a job. We're talking about all-pervading suffering of uncontrollably recurring rebirth and most fundamental unawareness or ignorance of reality that is generating the subsidiary existence. And confidence that it is possible for them to be freed from this. But it means an understanding of the basic purity of the mind and a realistic understanding of how we can actually help them. And with compassion, we take some responsibility to help them. And then with what's called the exceptional resolve, we take responsibility to help them all the way to enlightenment. Exceptional resolve. Usually it's translated as a pure wish, but that's not the best translation. Exceptional means out of the ordinary. And resolve means that it's a very strong, not only wish, but decision to act on that wish. and make a resolution that this is what I'm going to do. And then, on the basis of that, we realize that the only way we can fully help others is if we achieve enlightenment. And so, we get the bodhicitta aim to achieve enlightenment to be able to benefit everyone. So, unless we have built up all these steps before, this is what the state of mind of bodhicitta depends on, then it will be very difficult to actually generate that state of mind of bodhicitta. So, when we're doing the second step, thinking, 
then we could go through these lines of reasoning and these stages to get to bodhicitta. But there we are trying to become convinced that this is possible in this thinking process and to try to understand it. When we are at the stage of meditation, then we already understand this and we already are convinced of the validity of this. And at the beginning stages of our meditation, which may of course last for many, many lifetimes before we get beyond that beginning stage, we would at the beginning of the meditation still need to go through these lines of reasoning, these uh, steps in order to generate the bodhicitta aim. But eventually when we become advanced in our meditation, we would be able to just generate the bodhicitta aim instantly. And you have to know all of this to be able to meditate on bodhicitta. But with the bodhicitta aim, actually, there's always a first step of, regardless of which stage we're at, of generating love and compassion. Whether we have to go through all these steps, these seven steps, or whether we're just able to generate bodhicitta instantly, still there's going to be two steps here. One is generating the love and compassion, and then bodhicitta. Love and compassion are focused on other beings. And so what appears to us would be all beings. Well, how you visualize that is not so simple, but in general Mahayana practice, we try to imagine a huge audience of beings around us as we are doing our practice. We're benefiting everyone. When we read the Mahayana Sutras, we... Uh, read in the beginning the audience of Buddha's teaching to tens and hundreds of millions of beings all around. So this gives an idea of the scope that we're trying to imagine. And with compassion, for example, as I said yesterday, we're focusing on the suffering of those beings and the way in which our mind relates to it is the wish for them to be free of that. So that's not bodhicitta. That's compassion or love. You focus on their state of mind and wish them to be happy and have the causes for happiness. But this needs to be underlying. This is the support for bodhicitta. So you have to know all these different aspects, all these different pieces that are there. And then, as Tsongkhapa says, you have to know what you focus on in this state of mind. So what is bodhicitta focused on? So we're focusing on our own individual enlightenments that have not yet happened. That's important. I don't want to get too technical here, but it's not our future enlightenment which is already existing now. That's quite different in the Western way of thinking. We're talking about a not yet happening thing. Not yet happening is not happening now. So that's what we're focusing on. And it's individual. My enlightenment is not your enlightenment. Although the quality is going to be the same. So how do we focus on something that's not yet happening? We focus on the causes for it. So we're talking about our Buddha nature factors, which means the various aspects of the nature of the mind. So that means we have to really understand what we mean by mind in Buddhism and what we really mean by Buddha nature. And then on the basis of that, we can impute a not yet happening enlightenment as a result that can occur on the basis of the cause cause is happening now. The result is not happening now. To have bodhicitta, you have to have the confidence that you can achieve enlightenment. <coughs> Otherwise, you're aiming for something that you don't even believe you can achieve, which is silly. So, what actually appears to our mind in the meditation? It would be something that represents our enlightenment that's not yet happening. So, we can visualize a Buddha. 
And that can represent our enlightenment that hasn't happened yet. We can imagine our guru, our teacher, as being inseparable from the Buddhas or from Chenrezig or whatever meditational figure we're practicing, because that adds a quality of inspiration, which helps to uh, give us more energy to uh, reach that enlightened state. Seeing the guru as a Buddha, seeing the guru as a Buddha here is that in this sense we're focusing on the guru as a representation of our purified Buddha nature. doesn't mean literally that the guru is a Buddha and knows the telephone number of every being on the planet. And it doesn't mean that we want to become one with the guru and just melt into the guru in a devotional way and become like a soup with the guru, not Buddhism. Right? We might find that in some Sufi teachings, we might find that in some Hindu teachings, but please, it's not Buddhism. So now we need to know what we focus on, what appears to the mind with bodhicitta, and now, the next point, Sunkhapa says, how your mind relates to it. So it's two intentions. Underlying is the intention to benefit all beings, because all of this is on the basis of love and compassion. That's very, very strong. Otherwise, why would we want to reach the presently happening <laughs> enlightenment? This is a not-yet-happening enlightenment. You don't attain something that's not yet happened. When you attain it, it's presently happening. I mean, really, to work with this, you have to understand the voidness of the three times. Not very easy. So, I mean, only this moment now is happening. Nevertheless, we can talk about not yet happening and already happening things. Anyway, I won't go into that topic. That's a very long discussion. And then there's the intention to actually achieve that enlightenment. But as I say, with an understanding of voidness, it's not that that not yet happening enlightenment is sitting there in front of me and here is me dualistically over here, you know, this poor helpless thing, and now I'm going to go over there and get it. Certainly not that, so we have to have a much deeper, sophisticated understanding of the voidness of enlightenment and voidness of ourselves, the voidness of the path, etc. And we also have to know what actually does it mean to be enlightened in order to aim for it? So all the qualities of a Buddha. So, when we are meditating on bodhicitta, that's actually an incredibly sophisticated meditation. It's certainly not just sit there and wish everybody to be happy. So there's nothing wrong with sitting and wishing everybody to be happy and developing that. But don't think that that's bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is much, much, much more than that. So, Tsongkhapa is very clear here that if we're going to meditate to try to generate a state of mind or generate a focus on something, you have to know exactly what you're doing. And also he points out that we have to know what is going to be beneficial and help us for developing this and what's going to be detrimental and harmful, like selfishness, for example. And we have to know also, when we achieve that state that we're aiming for, that state of mind, what will the benefit of it be? And what would be the disadvantages that we have when we don't have that state of mind? So we will be able to benefit all beings with this bodhicitta equally. However, we have to have a realistic attitude of what that means. A Buddha isn't somebody that can just put their hand on somebody's head and, you know, you're saved. But certainly not it. And what are the shortcomings of not having bodhicitta? Well, even if we are very highly developed, we won't be able to benefit everyone. 
And when we try to help others, we won't really know what we're doing because we don't understand all the background of why somebody is in their present mental state and karmic state. We won't know all the causes. And we won't know, if I teach this person this specific teaching, what the consequences will be because this is going to have consequences not just on that person, but on every person that that person interacts with as a result of those teachings, and then that mushrooms all the way out, and then you think of future lives as well, and the consequences can be enormous. That's why we have to become a Buddha. We have to become omniscient. We have to know completely the most important thing, not everybody's telephone number, but the most important thing is all the causes for why each person is the way they are, and the consequences and effect of anything that we teach them, so that we know what's the best way to help. And if we really understand beginningless mind and endless mind of absolutely everybody, then we realize that everybody is interconnected and has interacted with each other, so anything that we do with any individual person is going to affect everybody. So that's why we need to become a Buddha. If we aren't a Buddha, then we're taking a risk in anything that we teach somebody. It might have not very nice consequences. So before becoming a Buddha, we try our best. We don't just sit and wait until we become a Buddha before we help anybody. But if we really want to do the best job, we need to become a Buddha, and therefore we need to become convinced that it is possible for the mind to become omniscient. And Tsongkhapa also says we have to know what to do in between sessions, and so we need to, he says, read various scriptural texts, let's say, hear about bodhicitta and bodhisattvas, gives us inspiration, and build up a tremendous amount of positive force and do a tremendous amount of purification to help us overcome our mental blocks. We have two types, emotional and cognitive. So we need to overcome both types of what's called obscurations. Maybe that's enough of this point. But what I want to emphasize here is how sophisticated this meditation process is. We don't just sit down and relax and be quiet. And as I explained the first evening, we have two uh, aspects of meditation. First is discerning meditation. So we work through either a line of reasoning or the various steps as we did in the thinking process so that we can build up to the state of mind that we're trying to uh, familiarize ourselves with. And uh, then we have that object of focus, like in this case for bodhicitta, a Buddha representing our enlightenment, our individual enlightenment that hasn't happened yet. And then we have to discern it, regard it in that specific way. Here it's with these two intentions, to help everybody and to reach that state. And it's a very active state because uh, it's accompanied by what's called gross detection and subtle discernment. These are technical terms, but basically it means uh, really understanding all the details and having that understanding be very active. And if we are focusing on something that we're visualizing, don't get caught up in trivial aspects, you know, like what, how the robe is folded and stuff like that. I mean, this is trivial. Missing the point is what it represents. Does Buddha have a belly button? I mean, really, come on. <laughs> so that's discerning meditation. So you just stay in that state of mind. We're not going blah, blah, blah in our heads. And if that discernment becomes weak, then you go through that line of reasoning. You get those seven steps again. Right? You have to generate that active state of mind and maintain it. So you really need to notice this. Have you lost it or not? 
And then the next stage is called stabilizing meditation, in which now you just focus on that Buddha with this intention and just let it sink in. You're not so concerned with uh, discerning all the details. And if that becomes weak, then you go back to the discerning, starting again with the steps to generate the state of mind. So that's the process of meditation, how you integrate something, habituate yourself to it. And whether we're talking about a type of meditation in which you focus on an object or a type of meditation in which you just sort of remain in a state of mind, whatever it might be, it's exactly the same in terms of all these procedures and all these details. Okay. Let's just let that sink in for a moment. Now, I don't know if you have any specific questions on specifically what you, what I've just been explaining. Fairly clear what I explained? Yes. We have three stages, hearing, thinking, and uh, practicing, or meditating. How much time should we spend on each stage? For instance, in monasteries, there are, of course, some educational structure. How much time does monks spend with uh, debating, with hearing of the teachings? Well... That's very hard to generalize. The listening to uh, teachings, if we uh, include in that the memorization of the teachings, which is the Tibetan method of learning, then up until the age of 12, when you usually enter a monastery when you're around 7 or 8 years old, all you do is memorize the various texts and the various teachings, specifically texts and ritual texts as well. There's no explanation. This is for both monks and nuns. So now you become very certain of the words. Remember that this is what Buddha actually says. I'm certain of the words. The hearing. And then they start the debating, usually around the age of 12 or 13. And this uh, is together with explanations from the teacher. You, know, you have classes every day. And then after the class, you debate for many hours with your fellow students. And depending on the monastery, depending on the tradition, and depending on the ability of the student, this can last for 12 years, 15 years, 20 years even. And during the course of that time, depending again on the individual, you might engage in what we would call formal meditation. But you have to realize that a great deal of the so-called meditation practice that they do is not really meditation according to the definition. It's basically recitation of a particular ritual text, and they might not even have a good idea of what you would visualize during it. But you to do it, and it's uh, and say some mantras and so on, but they haven't gotten to the stage where they can do actual meditation according to the definition. In other words, they don't quite know what they're doing. They just do it because it is actually very beneficial in terms of developing discipline, patience, concentration, etc. So there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not the full thing. And it's like that. I mean, how many people really do deep meditation? I know, it's hard to say. Even if you're doing a three-year retreat, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing meditation in the formal sense. You could just be uh, learning how to do a ritual and repeating a ritual without much understanding. It depends very much on the individual. 
you could be sitting in retreat for three years reciting mantras, and in the end you accomplish nothing. You could be sitting in retreat for three years reciting mantras, and in the end you accomplish nothing. Можно not really change your mind because you haven't worked on your state of mind, your attitude. You've just repeated things. Okay. Yeah. What are the methods for developing stabilizing meditation? I don't think that there are instructions that are specific to the stabilizing meditation because what one thinks of here are the instructions of how to concentrate and that would be relevant to both the discerning and the stabilizing meditation. So we have these general instructions on uh, concentration and it's very interesting to realize that when Shantideva, great Indian Buddhist master, discusses all of these methods in his text engaging the Bodhisattva behavior, he discusses it in the context of developing ethical discipline. So, first we have to develop these methods in our gross behavior of how we uh, act, how we speak, etc. And then you can apply it to the mind, how we're thinking. So, this gets us into the next topic that I wanted to discuss. It's very nice that you asked. There are many, many instructions here, so there really isn't time to go through all of it. You'll find that's on my website in an article entitled Achieving Shamatha, which gives all the instructions about what's the ideal place and air and how you overcome laziness and all these other things. So, what we need is, first of all, mindfulness. Mindfulness is the mental glue. The English word mindfulness, I don't know how it's translated into Russian, doesn't quite give that uh, connotation. We're talking about the mental glue, which holds on to a state of mind or a way of behaving. It is the same word as to remember, but we're not talking about remembering in the sense of taking something out of the memory file and recalling it. It's not that. It's uh, holding it, remembering So, what we have to have the mental glue on, you know, what we are holding is that object of focus and the way in which the mind is relating to it. And then you use, Sokhaba is interesting, he mentions uh, gross detection rather than subtle discernment, which means that with gross detection we are noticing what is the state of our mind or with discipline, how we're behaving. Are we coming under the influence of disturbing motion or a uh, mental wandering or dullness. We're not using here subtle discernment. Subtle discernment would be too involved with checking and your attention is really not on the state of mind that you're trying to generate. You're being the policeman and checking too much. So you have to be a little bit relaxed. So it's interesting that he uses this word, the gross detection, and not the subtle discernment. It's a big danger in meditation that you get too paranoid that you're going to lose the object, you're going to start to wander, and you become very, very stiff, and this makes a big problem. On the other hand, you don't want to be relaxed and sloppy. That doesn't help at all. Then we have alertness. Alertness is like the alarm system. So when we detect that we're losing the object, losing the state of mind, or whatever, then alertness sets off the alarm. Ding, 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 something has to be corrected. And then we use attention to pay attention, again, to bring the focus back. So these are very specific technical terms, and it's very important to really understand what actually they're referring to, otherwise the instructions become much too vague. Now, the uh, faults that we're trying to work with here 
come under two categories, two main categories, and these are flightiness of mind and mental dullness. We have a more general word, which is mental wandering, another word which is called distraction. That could be for any reason. But here they point out flightiness of mind, which is when we have mental wandering because of attachment or desire. And in most of the texts, the main object that they always uh, discuss is sexual attachment. And perhaps this is because of the influence that the main audience at that time are celibate monks and nuns for whom the whole issue of sexuality and working with that and overcoming that type of attachment is very central. But attachment to other people, attraction, sexual aspects are a very, very strong force to cause mental wandering. So they point this out as the strongest. It could also be attachment to food and to whatever, the music, these sort of things. So we have different degrees of it. And here, what we're working with is uh, the uh, placement of attention. So with gross flightiness, you lose the hold completely on the object. And you start thinking about all sorts of other things. So mindfulness, remember the hold, the glue is so weak that you let go of the object and think about something else. Subtle flightiness of mind is that you don't let go completely, but at the same time as holding the object, you have an undercurrent of thinking about something else. And the subtlest level is when you don't have that undercurrent of thought, but there is an itchiness, a tension to leave the object or to start thinking something. That's when the hold is too tight. Then there's mental dullness. And mental dullness is dealing with what's usually translated as a clarity object, but this has to do with the aspect that is giving rise to the state of mind, the appearance, if it's a visualization, or the feeling, if it's love. So we're talking about what I call the appearance-making factor of the mind. And so the grossest level is that this is so weak that our mind doesn't give rise to any appearance any visualization or any feeling, like a feeling of love. That's gross dullness. And this can be accompanied by two other factors, but not necessarily. It can be accompanied by what we call foggy-mindedness, which is a very heavy feeling of the body and mind. And it could be accompanied even more with, even worse, with sleepiness and sleep. That's the gross dullness. The uh, middling or middle level of mental dullness is when the mind gives rise to the appearance, but the hold on it is not tight enough, so it lacks sharp focus. Uh, what is not uh, strong enough? Your uh, ability to generate it and the hold, you know, holding that uh, appearance making. You have to hold on, you have to maintain it. You're not able to maintain it very well. So it's not in sharp focus. But we're not just talking here about focus on details of the visualization, but an emotion could also be out of focus, like love. It could be just a very vague feeling, you know, ah, love, peace, you know, I love everybody. (laughs) You're generating a feeling, but it lacks the specific focus that uh, is the wish for everybody to be happy and to have the causes for happiness. Remember, every detail, every aspect of the state of mind that we're trying to generate is very, very specific, it's not vague. And then subtle mental dullness, 
So we give rise to the object, to the state of mind, this sharp focus, but again, the hold, the maintenance on this is not sufficiently tight, and so it's not what's called fresh. Fresh means vivid and alive, right? Not like stale bread that's gotten very old and hard and isn't very nice. It has to be fresh in each moment. And when we talk about being spaced out, actually could refer to any of these faults. So we have to detect when any of these things arise. First, you, you set the mental hold, the mindfulness, the glue, and that's what is the most important thing. Hold on. But not too tight and not too loose. The example that I often use is when uh, we're on a diet and uh, we walk past the uh, bakery shop and there are all these beautiful cakes in the window that you have to hold on to the diet. Hold on and not go into the bakery shop and buy a piece of chocolate cake. Right? They're serving ice cream to everybody at the table. And you hold on. No thank you. On the diet. And then we have detection to see if we're going astray. Alertness, the alarm, ding, 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 if it's going astray, and attention brings it back. And is the mistake that the placement, the attention, something wrong with that, or is the mistake that the factor of giving rise to this state of mind is something wrong? The two dimensions that we work with. And is the mistake that uh, the placement, the attention, something wrong with that, or is the mistake that the factor of giving rise to this state of mind is something wrong? the two dimensions that we work with. So, Shantideva introduces this in terms of our behavior, discipline, that we use all these factors to deal with, you know, am I starting to say something stupid or something cruel or act in a cruel, destructive way and to hold on to the discipline and correct it, but without being the paranoid policeman. And this dualism of the me that is the policeman and the me that's meditating and, you know, oh, the stupid one or <laughs> the victim. I have to watch myself. That's really strange if you think about it. So obviously we need to have some understanding of voidness here of the self. Otherwise it becomes a very dualistic, paranoid, uptight, stiff process. And that's not at all what is intended. Okay, that is with discipline and with concentration, with meditation, all these areas. And this concentration that we need, we need that when listening to teachings, can't just mentally wander about something else and not pay attention. We need it in the thinking process, you need it in the meditating process. But specifically how you let something stabilize, how you let it just sink in. That's a little bit difficult to describe. There's something specific to that. It just says in the instructions that you no longer use this active state of discernment. Yeah, I mean, one could get more technical here, but I don't think that's helpful at this point. Because uh, actually when we're working with detection, what we're working with is conceptual because you're dealing with the projection that you have rather than the object itself. Detection is uh, a, is with the conceptual process. As I said, I don't want to go into detail, but there are reasons why the stabilizing meditation, you don't have this uh, detection, you know, this examining, this uh, seeing you know, in an active way, because what you're examining is actually the uh, conceptual image. 
So with everything that we have in Buddhism, there are always more and more subtle explanations and complicated explanations. You should just be aware that they are such things. And there are nine levels, nine stages for gaining shamatha. Shamatha is a, or shine in Tibetan. And I say it's very technical, very complicated, very full instructions of what you work on on each stage in terms of getting rid of this flightiness and dullness. And there's a huge list of different objects that can be objects upon which you get shamatha or vipassana, which you think that it's very limited. It's not. There's a huge number of topics that can be used. Just to indicate a little bit here, shamatha is a stilled and settled state of mind. It's literally what it means. She means stilled, quieted, and nay means it's settled, placed on something. So it is stilled or quieted of all mental dullness and mental uh, flightiness of mind, and it's settled, placed on the object, without leaving it. Through these nine stages of getting rid of uh, dullness and flightiness and many other factors that are involved here, eventually we achieve what's called in Sanskrit samadhi. Samadhi I translate as absorbed concentration. It's concentrated, totally absorbed into the object. So perfect concentration, that's not shamatha yet. Shamatha is one step beyond perfect concentration. It has, in addition to this perfect concentration, a mental factor called a sense of fitness. And it's both in a physical and a mental sense. So it accompanies physical cognitions involving the body and also the mind. And it's a very exhilarating state of mind, but not at all in a disturbing way. And it's like when you are physically fit as an athlete, you have this uh, feeling that you can do anything. You can run forever, you can swim forever, you know, you just feel great. This type of feeling of fitness, here we're referring to the mental state. And so it's this sense of fitness that I can concentrate on anything for as long as I want. Actually, by definition, you have to be able to have this concentration and this sense of fitness for four hours with absolutely no break. That's shiva. That's shavata. And that I can sit, you know, for that whole time and no pain, no problem. And, you know, I can do it. <laughs> and remember, we're not just talking here about quieting the mind, and we talk about flightiness and mental wandering and so on. We're not just talking about verbal thinking. That's only the grossest level. We can have a silent pornographic movie going in our mind. We're not saying anything. That equally is flightiness flying off after an object of desire. And even more subtle, that you want to get rid of the gross, disturbing emotion that's there. We're not saying anything. There's no movies going on. But I feel this strong desire and attachment. That also, I mean, that's flightiness of mind. So flightiness is not just shut up the voice in your head. It includes that, but that's only step number one. Or it doesn't have to be in that realm of desire and attachment. That's just the strongest. It could be you're sitting there and you're still feeling angry or still feeling upset and still feeling hurt about something. We're not saying anything in our mind. There are no pictures, but that's a very distracting feeling or emotion. That was has to be quieted. Okay, so shamatha. Then vipassana is on top of shamatha. There is no vipassana without 
shamatha. If it's vipassana, it is pervasive that it is combined shamatha and vipassana. We're talking about the actual achievement of vipassana. So vipassana adds on top of the sense of fitness of being able to concentrate and sit for as long as you want, also a second sense of fitness that you're able to discern and understand anything and everything. And as I said, shamatha and vipassana can be achieved focused on, there's a whole long, long list of the different objects that can be used. So in terms of the two kinds of meditation, the discerning and the stabilizing, the stabilizing is emphasized in shamatha and the discerning in vipassana. So often people in the West are instructed to uh, practice shine, shamatha, and often it is focusing on the breath, which is the simplest object because it's always there. But we need to realize and understand that it's not just speaking about a simple thing of sitting there and focus on the breath and quiet the voice in your head. It's much, much more than just that. No. It includes that, but it's much more. Don't trivialize it, in other words. Okay. First of all, let's just digest a little bit of what I've said and then we'll have some questions. Also, I should mention that the skill of concentration that I just described are skills that we need in daily life. And that's a very good place to uh, apply it. So I bring this in in the sensitivity training that I developed, developing balanced sensitivity. For instance, when we are speaking with somebody, somebody is speaking to us, you have to pay attention, you have to concentrate, not, you know, mind thinking about lunch and when are they going to shut up and go away. So it's a perfect area to practice concentration and, of course, in our work and other things. That, uh, we combine all these things. Somebody asks a question. Well, is meditation just restricted to when you're sitting on your meditation cushion? Absolutely not. Something that you practice all the time in real life. Spend one moment to digest it. We just bring in an example. Excuse me. <laughs> I think of the example of this whole in the Dalai Lama. When you speak with him, or even when you're just in a, in a group and his holiness looks at you, he's 100% there. That's because he has shine, a shamatha. No mental wandering, there's no anything. He's just 100% focused, but not in this stiff sort of type of way. Relax. And everybody feels, you know, when you're the object of that, if it's too tight, then it's like somebody's looking at you to see if there's something wrong with you. It's not like that. But uh, it makes you feel really, really wonderful in his presence. Most people, when you speak with them, or when we speak with other people, although this is not a very Buddhist way of saying it, it's like part of you isn't there. <laughs> That's totally non-Buddhist description. That's absolute nonsense from a Buddhist point of view. How could part of you not be there? It's ridiculous. But that's at least the way we say it in English. Okay, what questions do you have? Yes. At the first part of the lecture, you told that when we visualizing a Buddha, we need to understand what is uh, the enlightenment or what is the nature of the Buddha. But what is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the nature of a Buddha? I mean, the nature of the Buddha is the same as the nature of everybody. And so we're talking here about what is the basic nature of the uh, mind, speaking about the subtlest mind, 
and the subtlest energy that's a different aspect of the subtlest mind. And that subtlest mind, nature of mind, is capable of understanding anything and everything with perfect clarity and so on. Because the ability to give rise to some appearance, some understanding, some hologram of representing anything, that is part of the basic nature of the mind, and to be able to be aware of that. It's the basic function is what we mean when we talk about mind. And it has certain qualities that are part of us, in terms of the energy, for example, that the energy is able to emanate and go out infinitely, and relate, communicate with others, interact with others, interact with everything. And there's a voidness of the mind that none of this exists in impossible ways. We project all sorts of impossible ways in which the uh, mind and ourselves and everything exists, but that is not referring to anything real, so that's what voidness means. But on that subtlest level, the mind is not stained by anything that, that is obstructing it, but uh, on grosser level, there are these obscurations that limit the ability of the mind to know everything, that limit the body, the energy from relating to everything, and on grosser and grosser levels makes more and more limitations and in terms of disturbing emotions and impulsive behavior and all sorts of things. But that subtlest level in its nature is unstained. Without having these obscurations, that unstained state in Dzogchen is called Rikpa, pure awareness. But that subtlest state maintains the habits of all these obscurations. How do the habits go on? Why do these things continue from lifetime to lifetime, these obscurations? It's because the habits of them can be imputed on that subtlest level. So when we talk about clear light mind, it's either with those habits or in its pure state, you know, even purified with those habits. So it's not just a matter of getting down to Rick, but you have to get rid of these habits as well. But the Buddha is uh, someone who has gotten rid of forever all those grosser levels so where all these obscurations occur, as well as the habits from the subtlest level. Because the Buddha's gotten rid of the habits as well, then they never will recur. So then the Buddha is somebody in which all these limitations are gone in terms of what the mind is able to know fully, and all the limitations in terms of how the energy can relate to everyone and communicate perfectly with everyone. And all the qualities are fully operational. All the good qualities are fully operational. Because there are no limitations, nothing blocking them. So that's a Buddha. What we talked about when we talk about a Buddha, and that basic nature of the mind that we have as well are the Buddha nature factors that will allow us to become like that if we get rid of these obscurations. So when we're focusing on our not yet happening enlightenment, we're focusing on that basic nature, the pure nature, which is there all the time anyway, but the attainment of it, the attainment of that purified basic nature in which the, all these obscurations are gone forever, that attainment is what we are aiming for, this bodhicitta. And that state can be represented by a Buddha, represented by various things. So, so we focus on it. Otherwise, it's a little bit too vague. 
for us beginners. The more advanced, you could focus on, in Mahamudra, the clear light nature of the mind. Or Rikla, if you could do that, to focus on that, representing the not yet happening state of enlightenment. That's mm-hmm. much more difficult. Okay? Good. So, let's break for lunch. Those and then, uh, we'll continue in the afternoon with a discussion of visualization.